Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Paul. Hey, Pat. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I, I spent the day... You know, we're only doing, we're giving one class period to Philema. Touch of shame. Well, it, there's a sense in which everything is there. You know, the whole gospel is there. So there's so much to do with Philema. I, I got 17 pages of lecture. I can't do 17 pages of lecture. Just do uh, your thing. <laughs> I was, uh, I don't, you know, I, I was just kind of going through the, you know, David Hart's second edition of the tra- of this translation of the New Testament. It is quite good. I know I'm very, of course, you know, you always make fun of me, but I do think that there's, um, especially with Romans, you know, Romans is such a difficult letter because of all the problems that we've inherited over the years and because of all the different readings and traditions that either, you know, eisegete or mistranslate or whatever there's so many different issues there but there's such a clarity there with hearts translation that i, I really felt the text kind of coming alive in a very fresh way when i read it again and his and I, I mean the first his first translation i thought really elucidated you know what saint paul's really doing there but in this new translation i thought boy this is really um this is coming in a really new fresh way of um you know, the good news of the gospel that's over and against death, the kingdom of death, the law, and the way that you talk about the law. I think that you do get, I think that you get the law right. And I, and and when I go back and reread Paul, everything that you're doing, I think it really is there. And that, that when I was talking earlier about, uh, some of the perverse sorts of insights that I was having there with, you know, Romans seven, I understand that the male, you know, the husband's the one who's actually sort of consorting with the law, but Paul does this thing where he kind of switches the woman, the place of the woman in the place of the man, you know, in, in the relationship of the law. But what's interesting is, is the language that there that he says, you know, brothers, I'm talking, he uses the word I for the first time. I talk as to those who know the law. And then, you know, and he's already in Romans 6 to use this sort of almost sexually charged language, sort of domineering, slavery, presenting your members uh, to sin and unrighteousness and things like that, which for someone like me just carries like a sexual connotation. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's how sin manifests itself, first and foremost, is in a sort of sexual perversity. That's how Paul starts out Romans, right? That, you know, in his list of sins there, he begins with, trading the natural use for the unnatural etc that he has the law there of course right in the background he's, he's building upon what he's doing there to, he's then going to talk about the law and how the law uh, our orientation to the law is a manifestation of the law that's working in our members as he puts it but it does seem like there's sort of like this sexually charged language there of being a slave again remember i'm kind of half i'm being a little zizaki in here a little bit but um hey hey tim's here so be careful now oh yeah i won't yeah yeah i'll be i'll use the i won't use any bad words um <laughs> but yeah i mean the, the whole language of like domineering and um submitting and, and there's a subject object sort of relationship going on there but my major point in Romans seven not my point but saint paul's point is that the wife the woman is having a relationship with a man who's dead well there's right? no question that we're talking about sex 
Okay. And, you know, it is the, the issue, you know, she's consorting. She's consorting. And there's legal consorting and there's illegal consorting. Mm -hmm. And it's not the consorting itself that's the problem. It's the status of the husband. Right. And for Paul, the status of the husband that the woman's consorting with in regard to the law is dead. So it's sort of, it's almost like a necrophilia. I mean, it's a, it's a dark sort of picture because the, that again that language of the law, you know, that the law is sort of dominating, but the woman is like a willing participant. That's the language that you know that Zizek or you or whoever, you know, talks about there in terms of like our perverse orientation to the law, where we become sort of like the receptacles for this punishing, domineering, you know, force that really is nothing. It's dead. It's death for Saint Paul. So I thought that David Bentley Hart's translation really kind of brings that brings that out a little bit, where it's like it becomes kind of a stark picture, a very dark, you know, a love affair gone terribly wrong. I'm just taking what you gave me and applying it and saying that, yeah, you just said that it's about sex and that this is how sin, our orientation to sin often manifests itself in a very dark, sadistic or masochistic way. Uh, and that that it seems to be the way that Paul is describing the relationship with the eye to the eye, or possibly the eye to the dead to the law. But the, the good news is, though, is that the wife is now, you know, has a new husband who's actually alive, our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, good uh, good to see everybody, Tim, Jonathan, Jim, good to see everybody. As you know, the this gets very complicated in Zizek with the male and female orientation. So actually the woman, and if you would translate that into Lacanian theory, is representative of the prototypical male orientation in that the male orientation is an orientation dominated by the law, which is kind of interesting. Well, it's not there in Paul's illustration. But that, that in my book, I go through that, and that's kind of the confusing part, because what Lacan is taking as the prototypical male is represented in the very illustration Paul uses by the female, by the woman, which, of course, is no problem for Lacan and Zizek, because they're not talking about literal male and female. Uh, they're talking about an orientation. Which, of course, makes it even more interesting when you go back to the beginning of Romans, where, you know, where St. Paul gets a lot of, in a lot of trouble in our sort of, you know, postmodern Western world, uh, well, Eastern world too, but where he's talking about exchanging the natural uses, you know, that the men and the women are both exchanging the natural uses. And then it sounds like he's kind of, he's continuing on with that sort of line of thinking, one would, one would wonder in Romans 7, and in and, and, and Romans 6, by the way, where that, that, in other words, that language seems to pervade his letter to the Romans of the exchange for the natural and the unnatural, and what Paul seems to mean by that is death, life and death. I, I think that sexuality, in, in a sense, always plays into Paul's depiction of sin, but not as a, in a primary role. It's not a sexual misorientation. It's a spiritual misorientation, and then the sexual is subsequent to that. In our discussion tonight, you know, with slavery, it's, I think that with slavery and with sexuality, the basic issue, you know, if you think of uh, Giorgio Agamben's homo sacer, 
Are any of you familiar with uh, Agamben's Homo Saker? Okay, j j Matt is. I may do some Agamben tonight, but the idea is that with the creation of Adam, you know, there some people read that. I don't know if I agree, but just read that. Well, here is the creation of a kind of bare humanity. And then the, the sexuality is added on to that. I, I think that in a sense, whether that is true, you know, that, that actually, uh, the, in the New York Times this morning, there was a, a article my wife was, my wife reads me the New York Times. Uh, so there was an article by a rabbi uh, defending a kind, uh, I don't know what her sexual orientation is, but that, that was her point in the reading. And, I, and actually, that's some Christian point. The Christians read it that way in the early church. They said, well, people were created, and then the sexuality was added on. Whether that's true or not, I think it is a true depiction that sexuality is not the primary thing about us, but in some way it is very close to that primary thing. The primary thing about us is our orientation to God, and then sexuality is... is or to death. Uh, to God or death. I think that's yeah. the choice. Yeah. All right. Hey, Brian, you made it. I did. You're at a convention or something. Yeah, going to a conference in Montreal. So you're up in Tim's territory, Canada. Am I? Where's Montreal in relationship, Tim? Uh, I'm not really sure about French Canada. That's a different. <laughs> oh. I think that's a different country. Okay. You don't <laughs> really relate. Okay. <laughs> Matt, I've never seen you in the person. This is amazing. Yeah, I've been going to therapy. Excellent. <laughs> Let before I start, uh, this is a huge topic tonight, Philemon. It really deserves more than one week. But to my mind, you know, I, uh, this is some of Wright's best writing, I think. In fact, I think the reading that I gathered from each of you in answering, I think we all came out, oh, this is just obvious. We all know what this is saying. But, of course, part of the mystery in Philemon, and let me say that if you don't get Philemon in the history of the church, they have not gotten Philemon. So one of the things that I'm going to do is go through the history of interpretation of Philemon. And I think, you know, I think we all could just agree, oh, this is obvious that here's a runaway slave that Paul is advocating uh, 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 implicitly the manumission of uh, Onesimus, that here is a subtle way of overturning the cultural mores and even the laws. And I think that is the gospel. You know, that's the significance of what Wright is doing. He's saying the gospel is summed up here. But the early church, uh, and I'm not saying everybody misses this, and so we almost need to go back and restate, wait a minute, what is Christianity? Step one in, in the Bible, slavery is sin. It's sin metaphorically, and it's sin literally. That is the biblical motif, the, you know, the idea of an economic, social, psychological, literal enslavement. That's the background against, you know, when we talk about the slavery of sin. We're talking about the literal slavery in Exodus, Exodus, the redemption of Israel from out of Egypt. And so slavery is not simply the biblical metaphor for sin, but it is the concrete manifestation of what is meant by sin. 
Now, that's a bold statement, but I, I think that what would this implies is that liberation from slavery, a liberation theology, not like the violent liberation theologies uh, that we may have heard of, but a liberation, the, you know, the subversion of slavery, as we have it in the book of Philemon, is an example of the manner in which Christ defeats sin in general. And to restate it then, the practice of sin entailed in slavery is, it's not a, uh, simply a metaphor, it's not simply uh, an illustration, but I think it is a case in point of what sin does and what the gospel does in regard to sin. And so a liberation theology is correct in its understanding that the gospel is liberating from social, political, economic, legal oppression. The question is then, how does the gospel work in conjunction with overturning these categories? And of course, I think liberation theology also gets this wrong in that it unfortunately talks about, about a violent revolution. And so Christians are are called, you know, I, I think part of the early church is they're called from anti-Christian occupations and anti-Christian identity. And so it is in terms of class prejudice, slave master, in terms of economic oppression, the rich, the poor, uh, any system or any occupation that denies human dignity, and I think slavery is the archetype of that such a system. And of course, biblical slavery is specifically defined in its vulnerability uh, to crucifixion. That is, the, the, who gets crucified? What's the status of the crucified one? It's always the slave. You, by definition, you can't be a citizen of Rome. And I know there may be historical exceptions to this. But legally, uh, uh, slaves or a non-citizen class is subject to crucifixion. And so the whole point, of course, of slavery and the point of sin, it depends upon the fear of death, Hebrews 2.15. And so slaves were kept in line, and this is there. You know, this is, we, we, it's never brought up in Philemon, but it's the lurking thing that is there the slaves were kept in line by crosses. And so that to take up the cross would shatter the power that enslaves, because that's the very means of enforcing slavery. And so the death resistance, as we've talked about it, death acceptance, death resistance, the death resistance which kept slavery alive is precisely the universal power of sin opposed in the gospel. And so the whole thing, you know, in Isaiah is pictured as a covenant with death, uh, a deal with uh, a lie, a death subverted through the, you know, we could talk about the knowledge of good and evil, death that is in some way manipulated, or they're, they're attempting to manipulate it through human sacrifice. Slavery and crucifixion are all part of the system. And so it's through crucifixion Christ, the slave, he liberates us from every form of slavery. 
I don't think we should leave out literal slavery. And I'm afraid that our tendency has been to do that, and even on the part of the early church to do that. Uh, the slave of sin, like the Roman slave, like Onesimus, is kept in line through the fear of death, through the power of death. The master can kill you, basically. This is Hegel, you know. So the manner in which slavery is subverted and the way in which sin is subverted is through the fact that Christ was crucified as the equivalent of a Roman slave. I think that imagery, that fact is there. And so imagine if Philemon, when he received his letter from Paul, you know, charging him to receive Onesimus back as a brother to forgive everything, actually I'm overstating it here. Because Paul doesn't actually say that. He never says, oh, forgive him. And I think Wright's point's well taken here. That actually Philemon is not in that position. But to receive him back as a brother, to charge anything he owes, that's as close as Paul comes. To charge it to Paul, that is that Paul is putting himself, he says, well, if you're going to do it to him, do it to me. If he owes it, I'll bear that, you know, whatever it is. Could Philemon, as a Christian, reject these recommendations of Paul? You know, what if he chose? I, I don't, you know, is there a picture of Philemon in which he would treat Onesimus as his slave and do with him as he wills? That That's nearly an impossibility in, you know, Philemon's world, Paul's world, as it's been defined in Christianity. So the point is, you cannot, in after Philemon, and this, of course, is the contradiction of much of church history, you can no longer presume that there is such a thing as a Christian slave master. At least in the church, this is undone. There can be no Christian zealots. You really can't be even a Christian Pharisee. I guess you can't be a Christian harlot. You can't be a Christian executioner. And for the first 300 years of the church, you really couldn't be a Christian soldier. Now, that one is more complicated because we actually know, well, being a soldier may mean you carry the mail, that, but the idea of, of participating in violence. Even being an actor was problematic. You know, the Christian actors, uh, if you were an actor in the early church, they tried the church would try to find you another occupation. And so redemption entails departure from zealotry, from legalism, from the sex trade, you know, part uh, participation in the sex trade. I, I was just shocked, and I realized that my job was nearly impossible when I was teaching in a little Bible college here. And one of the students said, well, I, I want to be an executioner. <laughs> You know, we were talking about capital punishment, and he said he thought that would be a good job. I think there is no such thing as a Christian executioner. There is no such thing as one who drives the nails into the hands on the cross after the crucifixion and call that a Christian. Now, it may be that momentarily there are Christians who find themselves as slave masters. I'm not denying that. 
but the but I think Philemon is undermining that this book. There may be people who still, you know, momentarily are Pharisees. There may be people who are executioners. But of course they they can't continue. I suppose there's soldiers of fortune. There's mercenaries. I suppose there's even Nazi Christians for a momentary, but to be both of those things, you know, that's like being a Christian pimp, uh, a Christian drug lord. We know there are such things, you know. That is, if the word Christian means anything, there cannot be versions, permanent versions of these anymore, any more than you can be a black member of the KKK. And we understand, oh, actually, there was such a thing. But Paul is subverting slavery by drawing out the incongruity, the incommensurateness of Onesimus serving Philemon in a Christian slavery. The book is just drawing out that contradiction. And so I, I think the, the point here, you know, Paul tells him to accept Onesimus back as if he is Paul himself. Paul is putting himself in the place of the slave which I guess is the Christian duty. If we're thinking of James Cone's The Cross and The Lynching Tree, we're to put ourselves in the place of the one on the lynching tree, which, you know, Cone's kind of aghast that why is it that white Americans never thought of that, you know, parallel between the cross and the lynching tree? It's the most obvious thing to a black person in the United States. And yet, how many white Christians have made that connection? And so he says, if you regard me as a partner in the gospel, accept him as you would me. Regard him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Can you have a brother slave? Uh, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I don't think Paul's making, he's not allowing for any room here, and yet the church is going to consistently find room. The letter, this is one of the you know, most pathos-filled letters. He talks about Onesimus is my beloved, my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. And he says, I'm sending you in Onesimus, I'm sending you my very heart. And so behind this intense emotion is the reality, I think, of what is done to troublesome slaves. You know, ultimately, he could be tortured, he could be beaten, he could be crucified. And so the master that both Paul and Philemon and Onesimus serve has been crucified as a lowly slave. This should overturn the whole master-slave relationship. Part of the point here, and you know, part of the issue with the book, he, he is Paul laying a, a, a heavy burden on Onesimus by asking him to go back and demonstrate. I don't know. I, I'm unsure what it is that is required of Onesimus. We may assume that he has done something, and many people have debated this. You know, has he stolen money? Is he? I don't know that that's necessarily there. And some people, in fact, read the book of Philemon as saying that the only thing that Philemon done has gone to Paul to, in some way, 
mediate on his behalf before Philemon, some would say simply that he doesn't want to be a slave anymore. I don't know that. I don't I, I, I tend to not think that's all there is to it. But Paul does not say explicitly, but he hints that having confidence, you know, in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more that I say. And write makes, you know, well, there are probably the more that I say could be three things. That he, you know, accepts him back freely, that he maybe frees him, and he's treated no longer, he's freed as a slave, and maybe that he's sent back to Paul. Those are the three things that are a consequence of the main thing that you see Philemon as your brother. And so Paul says, more than that, what I say would, uh, more than what I say would seem to be imply that Philemon free Onesimus. And we know, Matt, from church history, what happens to Onesimus? Well, church history says that Onesimus becomes a bishop and the Philemon becomes a missionary. And Wright says, is it the same one? We don't know, but it could well be. It's not outlandish to think that this Onesimus that had this long association with Paul would turn out to be a bishop in the church, maybe. And so my, my point here, the law, as Paul will describe it, in conjunction with the sinful orientation, is on the same order as slavery. And if you don't get that, you haven't got the gospel. And so slavery was integral to the workings of society. It's like gasoline or electricity. It's behind the power structures. It's the currency. It's a means of accumulated wealth. I mean, that's why Jefferson, he, he thought, oh, yeah, that'd be great for me. I, I may do that someday. Of course, he never did. He couldn't afford it <laughs> to free his slaves. What do you have, some 300 slaves? and many children by his you know, slave consort. And so slavery is integral to the society. And of course, that's what we're up and against with Christianity, is there's an overturning of the social, the whole social order that many Christians, I think, are going to fail to see. The law as viewed from within the deception of sin is equated with life and mistaken for and confused with God. Unfortunately, a Christianity that imagines Christianity mainly has to do with the law is going to make the same mistake in conjunction with a real-world overturning of oppression. And so slavery was pervasive, and to challenge slavery that would be on the order of challenging the emperor system or would be the equivalent of today of challenging capitalism or nationalism or the notion that America is a Christian nation. The law of sin and death, you know, slavery, is the water in which we swim, and to escape it, I think, requires a complete overturning of our understanding of the way that power works. Any questions? This is not so much a question. Um, I, I remember when I first read um, his thoughts on Philemon, his um, his book, uh, Paul and the Faithfulness of God. I forget how many pages, if that's like 1,500 pages. But he basically starts out with Philemon and says, 
the only way you can understand Paul is understanding Philemon. And maybe it's an article or whatever that you gave. Um, that's what kind of captured his imagination early on. Yeah. Yeah, he uses that to open the book. Let me throw a curve. Is there any connection with usury and the church, the church denouncing usury? I think at one point it, you, you could uh, you could receive a prison sentence if you charged interest in the marketplace. And I'm trying to remember if that's connected with the church or not. Well, there are things that, like usury, that the church is going to see more readily than they're going to see this, which is I, I, kind of strange. That they're not going to, uh, for some reason, the kind of over the the radical nature, the you know overturning that Christianity amounts to, the worldview change. I think it's very slow in coming to people. I think slavery is an example of something that was just such an accepted thing, whereas usury may not have been. You know, today we don't we don't have that feeling about usury. Today we would have that feeling about slavery, but they couldn't see the slave thing. Many people couldn't see it. I mean, it wasn't until Gregory of Nyssa, you know, he was the first, I think, you know, the, I don't know if he was a bishop at the time, uh, whenever he just, you know, denounced slavery as an institution, you know, but you're talking you know, 300 plus years. Yeah. And I'm going to skip what uh, I think most of you have already seen, and that is that Paul's rhetorical strategy in the book, his whole identity with Philemon, his overturning, you know, that's the most obvious thing about the book. The other thing that is there is, you know, what, what was a human, and of course a slave, like any non-citizen, is not really considered fully human. Sort of like a woman. There is a kind of second-class level to these things. There is in the book this deep, you know, he's treating Onesimus as if he has agency, as if he has choice, as if he's human. The, the question here, in my illustration of, of equating slavery and sin, can you be saved from sin and still be enslaved. And my point here is obviously there are Christian slaves that are forced into slavery. But if we think of drawing the institution of slavery together with sin, the way that you transform people is in, an, I think the, the metaphor is that there, the way you transform the interior is not separate from the exterior that the way that you become fully human is you're integrated into a society and culture where you're accepted as fully human. And so Onesimus could not be in free in Christ in any sense of the term apart from a community which would affirm him as a brother and a child of God. And at the same time, the same thing needs to be said about Philemon. Philemon could not attain freedom apart from acknowledgement of the status of Onesimus as a brother. That is, their very Christian freedom on both of their parts is at stake. And so Paul is subverting slavery, but he's also giving us a new anthropology uh, and talking about, you know, the, the way you're fully human is in this reconciled family relationship in which the sort of 
except that alienation is overcome. And so justice and righteousness always pertain to relationships restored in the body. That is, it's always an embodied form of the faith. I'm afraid that this is why slavery could endure in the Christian world, because basically we that people had a, a disembodied Christianity. They pictured Christianity as you know spiritual and not pertaining to social relations. But isn't that still true today? That there could be Christian slave masters, or there could be Christian, you know, I I, I don't mean to be perverse here, but there, you know, can you be a Christian pedophile? Can you be a Christian idolater? Can you be a Christian sorcerer? Is there acceptable Christian drunkenness or Christian carousing? Paul says you can't inherit the kingdom of God, and I assume he means this in a very real sense. You can't do both things at once. I, I think he is not simply talking about a future estate, I'm just. I think he's just saying that's oxymoronic. You can't do that. Paul doesn't. Uh, you know, it seems like Saint Paul is saying something really radical here about identity, and that is, is that it sounds like Philemon quite literally just doesn't have himself apart from Onesimus. The way that Saint Paul talks about, you know, receive him as you would me, basically, right? In other words, he seems to have like this radical understanding of the unity of the body of christ that uh that we really are dependent upon one another for our very selves that that is that i literally don't have myself apart from paul axton i don't you've explained this before it's like i don't i'm not adequate i'm not up to the task to be able to describe myself or to say well here i am it's like well you might need paul your wife or other people for better or for worse to actually you know that and that's just with the description but I mean, even ontologically, it seems like what Paul's describing is this radical unity uh, that we've already talked about, which makes perfect sense in the context of Ephesians, right? That um, that you have these two, uh, that these two sort of estranged, supposedly parties who are Christian brothers, that Paul, in the part of Christ, in the person of Christ, is bringing these brothers back together as one and saying you know receive them as you would me basically right and then also get a room ready for me because i'm coming to be with you too you know so it's i think it's like this beautiful radical understanding of um you know we have this kind of individualistic understanding of our personhood this kind of autonomy this personal autonomy that paul just doesn't seem to subscribe to at all and that your point is the main point and that's the in conjunction with Ephesians, this is the main point. You know, what is Ephesians about? If you had to encapsulate it in one word, it's about unity. And it's you know, about the wall of separation has been abolished. It's been broken down. Master, and, slave, you know, Onesimus, Philemon, right? Like male, female. It's a radical sort of, um, I don't even know the word I'm looking for, Paul. You're good at this. What's the word I'm looking for? Cosmic reconciliation. And the individual, and I, I, I'm going to hit this a little bit with Giorgio Agamben. You know, this is kind of our problem with Black Lives Matter. We, we imagine people say, oh, no, it's not just Black Lives. And, of course, the problem is we have the distinction between the universal and the particular. And we, you know, the, in the history of interpretation that I'm going to get to here, 
people are going to be very dismissive of this book. You know, Onesimus, he's a slave. It's, you know, what's this matter? I'm talking about Christians. They're, they're debating even whether this book should be part of the canon of the New Testament. So our tendency is to imagine some universal you know, law or, or norm or principle, and in, in some way we inevitably miss the particular. And so I, I'm, I'm defending my own picture here. Cosmic reconciliation takes place in the particular example. I mean, I think that's the beauty of putting Ephesians together with Philemon. You know, just Colossians does the same thing. But here is cosmic reconciliation, but it takes place in these very particular instances. Yes, so unity. The, there is a, an overcoming of the uh, dualism dialectic, you know. David? Well, yeah, my hand's been up a long time, and it's getting tired now, so let me lower it. <laughs> All right. Um, so would it be safe to say that um, that if, if your gospel's not social, it's not a gospel? I think that's it. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you have a gospel that's not social? Right, right. I mean, because the gospel's um, about community. It's about recon if if it's the universal. What'd you call it? The cosmic reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation. Yeah. So, I mean, that sounds like the social gospel. Well, David. that's what I. You know, is that the social <laughs> gospel? That aren't we just trying to save souls? What's What are you talking about? Um, I don't know. I'll let Paul answer that one. How do you save a soul? That would be my question. Can you save a I soul? You, Go ahead, Dave. I think we change it, and we we start saving holes rather than souls. Yeah. W-H-O-L-E. Yeah. I was accused of this just very recently. Oh, he's just preaching the social gospel. Well, it is social, and it is the gospel, but I don't think it's the social gospel in the way that that is often taken. In other words, uh, the social gospel does get caught up in simply imagining that we can manipulate social categories. But I, but I think that what Paul is doing here is certainly social, and it's the gospel, but his main concern is not, you know, primarily with, oh, if we could just uh, abolish slavery. And Jonathan, I hope later on in the class you'll address this. Because I think both, uh, I think the Millers and in the Seventh-day Adventists is a very strong abolitionist movement. The question is, how do we, how does Christianity change the world? And I, I think that's the, the, the issue here. Do we change the world by manipulating social categories? No, that's not it. But neither can you talk about the gospel as existing apart from the the revolution in, in these social categories. Wouldn't, I mean, a, the social gospel that you were accused of falsely, wouldn't that, the letter to Philemon would have been much different in, in, in that view of the gospel, right? There wouldn't have been the love express. I mean, he would have just been called out and canceled or whatever because of the way he treated Onesimus. There would have been no reconciliation for him. That's it. That the social gospel is just, I'm afraid, concerned with social categories. 
Uh, and Paul could have, you know, just outlawed slavery and, you know, said, we Christians don't do that. I think that's implicitly, but he's saying something more than that. That is the positive nature of the gospel. It does undo these categories, but it replaces it with a sociocultural, anthropological understanding that displaces that former understanding. I mean, the way you've worked out that cosmic reconciliation, and I think that's the wonderful way to describe it, as we've already said in Ephesians, you know, we normally talk about these things in terms of nature and grace, you know, works and faith, creation and incarnation, salvation and deification, and that that and functions as a sort of a wall of separation, right? And then we can do the same thing with, you know, with anthropology, that there's me and the other, or there's Philemon and Onesimus. But Paul really does seem to have like this radical notion of cosmic reconciliation that would do away with that and whatever that thing is that we that we divide the work of Christ into this and that, you know, possibly even within our relationship with the divine, you know, the human and the divine, right? That there's always this this and that. There's a dualism that Paul seems to always be contending with and here. I think in a radical way, bringing a resolution to it by saying, actually, uh, Philemon has himself in and through Onesimus, and Onesimus has himself in and through Philemon, and the in and through is Christ himself, is the me- the middle, sort of the middle point of the, uh, the metaxological, or whatever you want to call it. I think we all agree that this is a profound and beautiful book, and I think I think we're in agreement, man, this is the gospel. But now let me get negative on you. And I'm going to go through the history of interpretation. And I don't know quite what to make of this. I'm hoping you guys will help me in my struggle. So the unspoken you know, image that we've said, well, is the crucifixion of Christ. So then the history of inter- interpretation. I All I can say is I guess they didn't get the gospel, and surely I'm wrong here. Philemon was included in some early canonical list, and there was little to no comment on it because no one apparently found occasion to mention it. That is, they just thought, well, here's this trivial little book. The letter was thought to have no doctrinal content, uh, that it might have, uh, you know, nobody's quoting from it or not very much. There's no contribution that's thought to the development of Paul's theology or to Christian theology in general. Uh, Theodore of Matsuesta's commentary mentions that Philemon was vigorously attacked in the 4th century because the subject wet matter was considered trivial and unworthy of an inspired book. Therefore, Theodore offered a lengthy essay on the utility of the epistle, for the church. Both Chrysostom and Jerome admit they have misgivings about the book, uh, and there are misgivings in certain segments of the church, whether it's the book is useful or even authentic. Chrysostom says, some say that this epistle is superfluous and to be laid aside. Jerome responds, in this way, These and others determined that the epistle which was written to Philemon was not Paul's, or if it was Paul's, that it has nothing that could edify us. It's not inspired. 
Which is really interesting for at least Chrysostom, you know, Chrysostom because he wrote extensively on, you know, uh, the Christian duty to the poor. He he wrote very, um, he was very hard on the rich in, in some places, you know. In some way, they're not getting this thing about slavery being a sin. And, and it, it may be just because, you know, it's just so pervasive. Uh, some said it may be a resource for teaching moral lessons, maybe for expressing the character of Paul, and maybe as an example of the gospel's power to convert someone so low, an example of humanity as a good for nothing, as you know, Onesimus and Paul says, you know, that he, he's useless to you, but now made useful. Oh, even a good for nothing slave can be converted. And this is kind of clear up to the Reformation era. It's thought to be lacking significant theological value. Chrysostom felt that some in the Christian community were too radical in their opinion regarding slavery. And, you know, he argues that he argues for the validity of Philemon, but he sought to show that Christianity upholds law and order, but that it was currently suffering from slander because of these radicals, quote, but now many are reduced to the necessity of blasphemy and of saying Christianity has been introduced into life uh, for the subversion of everything, masters having their servants taken from them, and it is a matter of violence. And so Chris Ostom introduced a novel interpretation in which uh, the fugitive slave hypothesis, the, the idea that not would not only address the issues in his own life's situation, that is slavery, but would recoup the usefulness of Philemon, you know, epitomizing the treatment of thieves, of highwaymen, of, uh, and of slaves. And so this is, uh, I'm quoting here, Chrysostom's reading of the epistle became normative for the church and generated a reading of Philemon that could be used for moral and auditory lessons for faithful and law-abiding Christians. Wow! <laughs> I think in our discussion we just determined this is precisely not what Philemon is. And yet for much of the history of the church, they're going to read it, I think, over and against. I think we are correct in our reading. I think we're correct in our understanding of the revolutionary nature of the gospel. Thomas Aquinas asserted that Philemon exemplified how earthly masters and slaves are to relate to one another. Martin Luther viewed Philemon as the epitome of Christian love. And by the way, Martin Luther said, you know, Onesimus' problem was he was all caught up with freedom, and he needed to get rid of that idea. But he says, what Christ has done for us with reference to God the Father, Paul also did for Onesimus with reference to Philemon. We are Christ Onesimus. John Calvin said, drew sociopolitical lessons. He observed that although Paul desired, desired to have Onesimus remain with him, he returned the slave to his master. 
Calvin's interpretation of letter expressed that the gospel does not overturn the established order. This seems to be the, the conclusion of many. We see in the interpretation of Philemon up to and through the Reformation a nearly unadulterated tendency to draw lessons for Christian living, you know, proper Christian slavery, I guess. Uh, I could do more with that. Uh, this, uh, you know, you go through the history of interpretation of Philemon. Uh, I don't know that it's uniform, but it's so nearly uniform that it's just overwhelmingly depressing. That nobody's getting it. Nobody's seeing. I'm afraid the revolutionary nature of what Christianity is. This is this. Let me do the Martin Luther quote. In 1527, a lecture on Philemon, he viewed Onesimus as an example of a person who was misled by the idea of freedom. He argued that Paul respected the established legal rights of property and did not seek to abolish slavery. They're all, you know, Calvin, that Paul has this notion of respect for the prevailing social order. Isn't that precisely what Paul's whole gospel is over and against, is the notion of Jews in their treatment of Gentiles? His whole gospel is about an undoing of the social order as he's received it, and he sees Christianity as overturning the social order. What this particular author, he calls it the anti-enthusiastic attitude. <laughs> which seems kind of an understatement. He even goes back as early as 110. Ignatius of Antioch held that although Christians should not despise slaves as members of the church, converted slaves should not demand that the church purchase their freedom. In his opinion, this would be harmful. It's almost like they view, they see Christianity as this revolutionary thing, and there's a kind of fear to unleash it. And and you get that with the Donatists, that some of the Donatists were advocating the overturn of slavery in North Africa. Uh, they were calling for the release of all slaves. And Chrysostom reacted, he says, Christendom has brought into life the overwhelming of all things. And uh, in other words, he's, some groups felt like that, and he's saying that's not true. And likewise, uh, Theodore Machiesta remarked that several of his contemporaries are upset by uh, all things of the present life. Uh, they no longer distinguish between slave and master, rich and poor, those subjected to rulers and those ruling over. I think that's exactly the point of the gospel, and they're denying it. Jonathan, I came across some Seventh-day Adventism James White argues that if we suppose that he was a slave, and now he would be received not as a slave, but a, above a slave. What is the dates, by the way, Jonathan, on James White? I don't, I don't remember when he died. I think he died before the turn of the 20th century, probably the late 1890s. But he was okay. active from the 1830s through the 1890s or 1880s. The, the Adventist church formed right about at the start of the Civil War. I think it was 1859 or 1860 and when so it he, officially formed. 
Okay, and so they, as I understand it, the Adventists are very strong abolitionists. Absolutely, yeah. And why they, they disfellowshipped? They disfellowshipped people for supporting the South. And White is saying, if we read Philemon correctly, that it will have a fatal consequence for slavery. In other words, you read this book, you understand it as, I think he's reading it the way we're reading it, that to receive Onesimus as a, a brother, it's the undoing of slavery. I think that's right, but, why, you know, it, that where people were taking Philemon, and maybe because of this history of interpretation, uh, or actually you had actually some people using the book, like Calvin and Luther, and in the history of the church to support slavery. And what we might be, you know, missing here that we haven't said explicitly, maybe implicitly, what this letter is ultimately about, I think, is about uh, the rich and the poor, too, right? I mean, that's what that's what slavery and, you know, that's what the master and slave relationship is about, is about... Uh, you know, the rich and the poor and the relationship with, that the laborer has with the, you know, the employer, as, our, as it were, right? But I do think that it's it's at least of note that St. Gregory of Nyssa, who the Seventh Ecumenical Council called the Father of Fathers, denounces uh, in a fierce, he has a fierce homily, I believe, on Ecclesiastes, where he, you know, remember his sister, Macrina, was his teacher, and Macrina had um, convinced their mother that they themselves should live with their servants, you know, that they shouldn't be above their servant. So they had, they already had this sort of familial rule where they, you know, they lived and, you know, sort of hung out with their, with the servants, as it were. Gregory's denouncing of slavery really what it does, it does appear as though it was in the midst of a sort of malaise or people didn't know quite, quite what to do with it. And it was kind of shocking to, you know, to hear the way how, how Gregory so fiercely and just, you know, he basically says that it's intrinsically sinful opposed to God's actions in creation, salvation, and the church. So oh, this father, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this father or fathers, you know, comes out super hard. But I do think that, you know, th this conversation is a tough one, too, because I do think it's about economics. And so that's always going to be something that's going to be hard for the church. You know, r remember, we're going to, all types of developments are going to happen in the church that are going to do the same thing with Jesus' teachings as regard to, you know, the poor, uh, giving away possessions, uh, all sorts of, you know, teachers are going to teach different things to sort of maybe relax some of those requirements that Jesus may or may not be quite, you know, explicit about. Um, giving, you know, no one can be my disciple. You know, if one doesn't give away all his possessions, he can't be my disciple, that kind of thing, uh, or renounce all of his, his possessions, you know. Uh, and that sort of language that's there maybe was too much for people to, to bear, you know, just like with the violence issue that we talk about, right? That it was the, it's such a radical issue uh, or teaching from Christ that then, you know, bishops even began to sort of rationalize and talk about, well, you know, why we might be able to do violence in some, you know, in some cases, or why, you know, being wealthy is intrinsically evil, uh, which may in fact have been the teaching of Christ. So, in other words, if you translate that over into the letter of Philemon, that what Paul is talking about here is also the abolition of a sort of uh, hierarchy, you know, in an economical sense too, right? Where he's saying, receive him as your brother. I think you know, he not is just a labor. I think there is a, an issue, of, but I, I wouldn't want to equate the issue of rich and poor with the issue of slave and master. And, you know, you can test this. Well, would you, would you rather be a, a poor man or an, a slave with a high position? 
it, but the relationship though is one of power and of you know, and of you know and of labor and of exploitation and of you know of of money that it, it, but you understand that even in rome that the master could do sexually whatever he wanted with the slaves he he they were at his disposal in terms of life and death they were capital property it, they were his property and so I'm not saying that being poor is a happy estate, but I imagine that many slaves, no matter their position, would be happy to be poor and free rather than to be enslaved and taken care of. And that's really the issue of the Jews returning to Egypt. They said, well, in Egypt, we're well fed. In Egypt, we're taken care of. In Egypt, we have security. I'm not saying that some wouldn't choose slavery, over freedom but i think the better estate is to be regarded as human and slaves really did i know that we could compare the chattel slavery of you know the united states and that it does not necessarily compare favorably with roman slavery but nonetheless i think there were many parallels and that the roman slave too did not have the privilege of citizenship the protect protection from you know being treated as property yeah i mean it sounds like that they weren't fully human right that's that the point is is that in some way onesimus didn't have the the you know sort of full rights as a human being as philemon you have to forgive my dog layla who's she gets very excited when we talk about the abolition of slavery and the you know the evils of capitalism and stuff like that so if you can hear in the background but yeah i mean to me the the two are very much uh inter interrelated because of uh, what it means to be a human, you know, whether it's a laborer or, you know, uh, or, you know, someone who profits off of someone else's labor instead of paying them their, you know, the wage. I mean, one could argue that a, 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 a profit is just an unpaid wage. But, 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 I, but I understand you're saying, you know, that, that there's a, there is this larger maybe issue, but I think that that issue also encapsulates things like economics and sociocultural, political it sort does. of yeah, relationship. It yeah, it does include those things. But slavery is a uh, image of sin for a very particular reason, and it is the dehumanizing aspect of it. That is, that slavery and being enslaved dehumanizes us, whether it's the metaphorical slavery to sin or the literal slavery uh, that the Jews suffered in Egypt or that Onesimus suffers in Rome. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.